morning, family. It's good to see everybody. We've got some visitors here this morning. Extra excited to see you. Uh, we want you to know how grateful we are that you uh, chose to spend your morning with us, and we hope that you are encouraged by your time with us this morning. If everybody would, go ahead and open up to John chapter 12. We continue in our journey through the Gospel of John this morning. Going to give you a little bit of a heads up. We're going to work through part of John chapter 12 this morning. Uh, we will not be in John the next two weeks because I won't be here the next uh, two Sundays. Uh, Robin and Paisley and I are going to be traveling. Uh, I've been promising Robin a trip to Hawaii for a very long time and finally making good on that promise. So keep us in your prayers as we travel, if you would. And just want to remind you, I looked it up, there are no cell towers anywhere in Hawaii. So if you try to call me and I don't answer, that's why. Just giving you a heads up. All right, so John chapter 12. Last week, as we worked through the passage that we were in, the beginning of John chapter 12, um, we talked about the story of Mary anointing the feet of Jesus with a very expensive perfume, and she did it with her hair, and we talked about all of the beautiful imagery that comes along with that story. And what I encourage you to think about towards the end of that lesson is what John points us towards through the rest of his gospel as we go through the last week of Jesus' public ministry leading up to his death and then resurrection, talked about the fact that she was not just putting perfume on him, but she was anointing him for his burial, but also looking forward to another reality that we see play out in Jesus' life is the fact that he is becoming king, the king that God has called him to become. So she had done what she could. She anointed my body beforehand for burial, and then uh, in Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 9, thinking about the kingship of Jesus and the events that would take place, ultimately him being hung on the cross with the inscription over him, reading, this is Jesus, King of the Jews, with the crown on his head, the kind of coronation that he experienced as a king and what that tells us and informs us about his kingship. Thinking about Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 9, but we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor, certainly not in that moment, hung on the cross, but crowned with glory and honor because of that moment, because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone on behalf of everyone. We're going to continue thinking about this idea this morning because this is exactly what John encourages us to think about in the text that we're going to look at this morning. Uh, so in John chapter uh, 12, if you pick up with me, we're going to pick up in verse 12. John chapter 12 and verse 12. It says, The next day, the great crowd that had come for the festival, and this is, of course, Passover. The next day, the crowd that had come for the festival heard that Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem. So up until this point, he has spent some time away from Jerusalem trying to avoid the crowds. But in the beginning part of John chapter 12, he heads back to Bethany where Lazarus and his two sisters are because they're having a, a banquet in his honor. And so that brings him to the outskirts of Jerusalem. And word starts to spread that Jesus is back and people are getting ready for him, expecting that he would be in Jerusalem for the Passover. So it says they heard this. It says they took palm branches, verse 13, and they went out to meet him. And they were shouting as they did that, Hosanna. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the King of Israel. 
Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, as it is written, Do not be afraid, daughter Zion. See, your king is coming, seated on a donkey's colt. At first, his disciples did not understand all of this, and it was only after Jesus was glorified that they realized that these things had been written about him and that these things had been done to him. Now the crowd that was with him, when he called Lazarus from the tomb and raised him from the dead, continued to spread the word. Many people, because they had heard that he had performed this sign, went out to meet him. So the Pharisees, who had already at this point in time, remember, decided to put into effect a plan to put him to death. See, this is getting us nowhere. Look how the whole world has gone after him. So they're even more frustrated by the fame and notoriety that he's gaining because of these events. So let's work through this text. There's a few things that we need to think about. So... Number one is the timing of this whole event. And I'm sorry, it says John 11:54. It should be John 12. But the timing of this event, so, and this builds nicely off of what Joshua was talking about in his class this morning. If you look at John's gospel and compare it to the synoptics, there are some, what seem like on the surface level, difficulties in trying to make John's timeline work with the other synoptic timelines. And we will talk about that more in detail as we get into some of the passages we're going to talk about over the next few months at the end of John here. But for now, just understand that this is the beginning of what we call Passion Week or Holy Week. And what do we usually refer to this day as? Palm what? Sunday, right? So traditionally, it's understood that this is taking place on the Sunday leading into the week that leads up to Jesus' death. Some people would argue that, but we're going to we're going to go with the traditional dating of, of this event. So it's Sunday in the Holy Week, and it says that that day the crowds had come to Jerusalem hearing that he was there. And it says they took palm branches and went out to meet him shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, blessed is the King of Israel. I want you to think about several things in this greeting, what they shout to Jesus and how they receive him as he enters into Jerusalem. Number one, they are quoting from Psalm 118. Psalm 118, and this is a psalm that they would have been very familiar with. It's a psalm that at this time was used in the liturgy of both the Feast of Tabernacles and Passover. So this is a psalm they were used to hearing as they gathered for those two festivals. It's also a psalm that was used sometimes to uh, refer to the kingship and the monarchy in Jerusalem. And I think it's that idea, this idea that ties it to kingship, that John's really trying to get us to think about here. What I want to show you is this, is they reference this psalm. And by the way, this is also a greeting. They would have used this greeting to pilgrims who had come to Jerusalem for these holy festivals. It says, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, for the house of the, from the house of the Lord we bless you. And so these pilgrims are greeted as they enter into Jerusalem in this way. But here's what I want you to think about. Are they using this just as a generic greeting the same way that they would have greeted any other person that was coming into Jerusalem? Or are they using this in a special way, inferring something peculiar about who they thought Jesus was? In other words, as they say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Is that he as in anyone? Or is this he as in capital H he? There's something special about this man. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. In Luke's account of this, Luke records something interesting. So this is how Luke records it. It says, Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. 
peace in heaven and glory in the highest. This is what his followers are shouting. This is what the crowds are shouting as they're excited to welcome him into Jerusalem. And there's this expectation in their voice. But it says, some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to Jesus, teacher, rebuke your disciples. And the reason I point this out to you is because clearly the Pharisees are seeing the way the crowds are welcoming Jesus into Jerusalem, and they understand this is not just welcoming another pilgrim into Jerusalem. They are saying something significant about, they, about who they think he is. And so they say, rebuke your disciples. This isn't appropriate. You've got you to tamp this down. This is getting out of control. Why are they uh, receiving you into town the way that they are? Put an end to this. And this is Jesus' response. I tell you, if they were to keep quiet, what? What does he say? Even the stones will cry out. This is absolutely appropriate. And this seems to be the only time in the week leading up to Jesus' death when all of the crowds understood who he was and how they should be receiving him. This, these same crowds are going to cry something very different towards the end of the week. But in this moment, Jesus is saying, no, this is absolutely appropriate. And even if they were to be quiet, the stones, and I think he's referring to the stones the temple were built out of, even the temple itself would be crying out, receiving the Lord into its presence. But what about the palm branches themselves? Well, palm Sunday, you've got this vision in your head of these people laying down these, these palm fronds on the ground as Jesus entered into town. What, what is that all about? Is there any significance? Or was it just heat of the moment, hey, the landscapers left a pile of palm branches, let's use those. You know, what is going on here? Why the palm branches? It says they took palm branches and went out to meet him. Well, there's a few things to understand. If you go back to Leviticus chapter 23 and verse 40, this is instructions given to Israel about keeping the Feast of Tabernacles. Palm branches figured in that ceremony. So it says on the first day you were to take branches from luxuriant trees, from palms, willows and other leafy trees and rejoice before the Lord your God for seven days. I just want to point out that the Israelites were used to using palm branches in significant moments, that there was some meaning behind them. But even more significant, I think, is what we find in both 1st and 2nd Maccabees. Now, if you go back several weeks when we talked about Hanukkah or the, the Festival of Lights and we talked about um, the, the Feast of Dedication and how Jesus was in Jerusalem at that point in time, we talked a little bit about the history of the Maccabean Revolt and how that's recorded for us in the books of First and Second Maccabees. And I do encourage you to find copies of those and, and read them. The history is important. But two things I want to point out. First, in Second Maccabees chapter 10, verses 7 and 8, we read this. Therefore, carrying ivy-wreathed wands and beautiful branches... And also fronds of palm. They offered hymns of thanksgiving to him who had given success to the purifying of his own holy place. This is describing the rededication of the temple. This is the event that Hanukkah is built off of. The remembrance of when they finally cast out those who had occupied Jerusalem and were able to rededicate the temple to the Lord and put it back into service for worship. For Israelites. It's during that moment that palm branches again figured heavily into that scene. It says they decreed by public edict, ratified by vote, that the whole nation of the Jews should observe these days every year. So there's that vision in their head. Hey, remember when we rededicated the temple, how we used palm branches 
in that moment. But then here's the one that I think really gets me. Now go back to 1 Maccabees, this time chapter 13, and it's describing the final defeat of the Syrians. And as the Maccabees proved to be victorious over their enemies after these long, bloody battles, and they finally give in, and the enemies are dispelled from Jerusalem, this is what we read. On the 23rd day of the second month, in the 171st year, the Jews entered it with praise and palm branches, and with harps and cymbals and stringed instruments, and with hymns and songs, because a great enemy had been crushed and removed from Israel. So when they use palm branches, these branches signify a lot in the history of Israel. And it's this last one especially I want you to think about as they cast back to recent memory as they were celebrating part of this significant part of their history when they had been occupied by the Syrians and the Maccabean revolt led to the eventual expelling of those enemies from the walls of Jerusalem and they were able to get use of their city and their temple again. Palm branches is what they used to celebrate that victory. So all that just to say that during Jesus' time, palm branches were a powerful symbol of victory, but also of Israel's nationalistic hopes. They were tied to a point in their history where they as a nation were preserved. And with that in mind, I want you to think about this question. Was this crowd on this day, the crowd that was welcoming the King of Israel, Jesus, into Jerusalem with palm branches, was this crowd looking for that kind of king, thinking about the Maccabean revolt? Were they, think, were they looking for the kind of king who would lead them into another revolution, and this time into victory over the Romans who were occupying them at that moment in time? I think it's fair to say that they probably were. I think those are the expectations that they had. And this is what I really want you to think about this morning, is that that idea of Jesus coming as king, that meant something specific to that group of people in that place, in that time. Not just king in a general sense, but king in a specific sense. What did it mean to them that Jesus might be king? That's what I want us to think about this morning. So the crowd might be expecting this victorious scene. Jesus is going to expel the Romans and grant us freedom yet again. But as soon as you might start thinking that way, John does something interesting, and he reminds us of this. He says, Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, as it is written. Do not be afraid, daughter Zion. See, your king is coming seated on a donkey's colt. And we know from the synoptics that Jesus didn't happen to find this donkey colt. He sent the disciples to go get this donkey colt. He chose to ride into Jerusalem on the back of a donkey colt, or a little donkey is the way that John puts it. Why did he do that? Of all of the things he, he could have chosen to escort him into town, why a donkey colt? There's something he is, is trying to illustrate through his choice of creature here that we need to pay attention to. John subverts expectations by painting a picture of a very different kind of king. Jesus is not one of the Maccabees. This is a different kind of king. This king doesn't ride valiantly into the city on a mighty war horse, celebrating a victory achieved through violence and bloodshed. This is a different scene entirely. 
And so Jesus chooses this donkey because, as John points out, he's thinking back to Zechariah 9 and verse 9, which Landon read for us. And what does it say? Rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. Shout, daughter Jerusalem, because your king comes to you, righteous and victorious. Is Jesus bringing victory with him into Jerusalem? Anybody? Yes, absolutely. He is bringing victory with him into Jerusalem. It's just not framed the way that they understand it in that moment. It's not victory over Rome. It's victory over a much more powerful enemy, isn't it? And it's victory granted not just to the Israelites in that moment, but victory to mankind everywhere. So your king is coming to you righteous and victorious, but listen, lowly or humbly and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Not just a donkey, but a little donkey. What kind of king was Jesus? The kind of king that chooses as he is celebrated as king, as all of these nationalistic hopes are riding on him, he's telling them, listen, pay attention. I'm the king that comes into town on a little donkey. I'm the king that comes to you lowly and humbly. Victorious, yes, but not in the way you're expecting. So this is what happens in John chapter 12 and verse 16. In reflecting on this, John adds this kind of an editorial thought here. He says, at first... His disciples did not understand all of this, any of it. Like it, it. It wasn't clicking. They were there to experience it, but they didn't understand it. Only after Jesus was glorified did they realize that these things had been written about him and that these things had been done to him. It took them a while to figure out what all of this meant. And my question for us today in reflecting on this is do we understand? In reflecting on what Jesus did and why he did it and how the people are receiving him into town in this moment, do we understand what that means? Ask you a question, okay, and you can answer out loud. I give you permission. Okay? If I were to ask you to attach a title to Jesus' name, a descriptive title, an adjective that's also a title, so if I were to say Jesus is fill in the blank, okay, don't use king, we're talking about that, some, some other adjective, some other title, you would say what? Jesus is Christ, Savior, Lord. Anything else? Suffering servant. All right, good. There's all kinds of terms we can use, right? Good. Okay. We think about all of those and we attach them to Jesus and all of them are important and all of them are meaningful because they help us not just determine our own faith, help us determine the identity of Jesus, but they help us in articulating that to other people, right? What is the title most often associated with Jesus? Jesus Christ. Not his last name, right? The title. Christ meaning anointed one, just like Messiah. It means king. It's a reference to the kings of Israel that were anointed. It's a reference to the promises made to David that he would have a son that would sit on the throne forever and usher in a completely different kind of kingdom. There was this expectation that Jesus is king. And I would suggest to you that of all the titles we use of, of him, that's A, one that we underutilize the most. We don't most often call Jesus king. But when we do, I think it's also one of the ones we misunderstand the most. And it's not, don't get me wrong, it's not like we never refer to Jesus as king. 
Some of you might recognize this album cover. A few years ago, Kanye dropped an album, gospel album, titled Jesus is King. Right? The terminology has, has entered into our minds. This is part of common vernacular now. People are, are familiar with the phrase. It's not like we've never heard it. My question isn't, have you heard the phrase, Jesus is King? It's, do you know what it means? What does it mean to say, Jesus is King? For that group of Israelites on that day, for them to welcome him into town as king, it meant something to them. What does it mean to us today if we proclaim boldly, Jesus is king? It's such a loaded term. What does it mean exactly? And I think this is what John is inviting us into. Is He's inviting us to think critically about what that crowd meant. He's also inviting us to think critically about what we mean when we use that term today. So what does it mean that Jesus is king? I'm not going to answer that fully today, but we are going to embark on a journey that answers this over the next few months as we finish up the Gospel of John because everything he does and says and everything that happens to him and everything that happens because of him and everything that happens for him teaches us the answer to this question. What does it mean that Jesus is king? But something I want you to think about this morning. So a few passages. And I would encourage you to write these down and spend some time in these, okay? The first comes in Colossians chapter 1, if you'll turn over there with me. Colossians chapter 1. In Colossians chapter 1, Paul writes this about Jesus. Who is Jesus exactly? It says, The Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in him... All things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether, listen to what he says carefully, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and, what does Paul say? For him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have supremacy. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross." How powerfully does Paul help us think about who Jesus is in passages like this? There is a lot to wade through and unpack and ruminate on in those passages. That is big language. That rulers and authorities were created through him and for him. It says something about the kingship of Jesus in passages like that. Here's another one, Ephesians chapter 1. So turn over to Ephesians if you would this time. Ephesians chapter 1, again, starting at verse 15, Paul again here says, For this reason, ever since I heard about your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all God's people, I have not stopped giving thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him better. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in his holy people and his incomparably great power for us who believe. That power is the same mighty strength he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms, far above all rule and authority, 
and power and dominion, does that say something about the kingship of Jesus? And every name that is invoked, not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. And God placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. You get the impression here that Jesus isn't a king. He's the king, and it means something. What does it mean? You go on to Ephesians chapter 6, towards the end of the same letter. This is a passage I think most of us are familiar with. It's one we love to use with our young people, talking about the armor of God. But he says this, starting in verse 10, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against whom specifically? It's the devil and his schemes. For listen to what he says in verse 12, and we get this wrong so often. We pick fights with our fellow image bearers, but that's not where the battle is. He says in verse 12, For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. What does that mean? It means that if Jesus is king and it's going to have an impact on our life, then he has to have authority even over those heavenly realms, even over those spiritual places, that this title of king, when ascribed to Jesus, means something so much more than we oftentimes think it does. Revelation chapter 1, verses 4 and 5, as John begins his revelation and he starts out his letter to the seven churches, this is what he says. Grace and peace to you from him who is, who was, and who is to come. And from the seven spirits before the throne and from Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, and the ruler of what? Kings on earth. So, so here's the deal. When we, when we talk about the kingship of Jesus, when I ask you the question, what does it mean that Jesus is king? Think about all of the different ways that you can answer that question and think about that question. That there are cosmic implications of Jesus' kingship. That Jesus rules over the spiritual realm and the heavenly places, those, those things that we know exist but we can't even see with our eyes. He's king over all of that. It has global implications because he's not king restricted to any single group of people or any particular geographic location. He is, what, is, what does John say here? He is the ruler of kings on earth. It has global implications that Jesus is king because he is king of kings and lord of lords. That there is no authority higher than his on the whole planet. For the Israelites in that moment, it had nationalistic implications. They knew that they as a people were being occupied by a foreign force, and they wanted what? They wanted freedom from that reality. Does the fact that Jesus is king have nationalistic implications for us today as citizens of this country? Of course it does. But do you take time to think critically through what that means we're entering into yet another season where our two political parties are going to be doing everything they can to convince you that if you don't get behind their champion, the very future of our country is at stake. And we're all going to wring our hands 
over did we get this right? And why doesn't everybody see it the way I do? But more important than that is that Jesus is king. Do we set that aside because of our nationalistic hopes? Or do we see our nationalistic hopes through the lens of the kingship of Jesus? And what are the implications of that, if so? What about for the church, both globally and here in Mission Viejo? Does it mean something to say Jesus is king? Should that be central to our mission? Should it be central to our messaging, to our neighbors around us? Oftentimes we focus in on this. Jesus is my Lord and Savior. And he is, absolutely. But Jesus is King of kings and Lord of lords. We, we too often make salvation purely individualistic. What, what do we think about? What did Jesus do for me and what does that mean for me? But what does it mean for everyone that Jesus is King? And how are we called to work together because of that reality? There's so many things to think about when you ask this one question. What does it mean that Jesus is king? But I'm going to bring it back to this one at the very end. What does it mean? Here's the easiest one you can answer today. We're going to wade through the rest of it as you go throughout John. But starting now, if you're not already asking this question, start asking it. What does it mean for me? What does it mean for you that Jesus is king? And as you think about that question, I invite you to set your eyes on the cross. What does it mean that our king rode into town on a donkey? What does it mean that our king gave himself freely over to his enemy? What does it mean that our king was crowned with a crown of thorns? What does it mean that our king was declared king in the most humiliating way possible. What does it mean that he did all that and yet is victorious? What does that mean? What does it mean for you? What does it mean for me? I want you to think about those things. I know people get frustrated sometimes with the preacher when I don't give you three points in a poem and give you homework to go home with. I'm not doing that today. I'm asking big questions, and I'm asking you to invest yourself enough in those questions that they occupy your mind and your heart and your time this week and every week. So I invite you into that question this morning. We're going to stand, we're going to sing a song together. If there's anything we can do as a family to serve you in any way, now's your opportunity to let us know. You can come forward and let me know, and we are here to serve. But as we stand and sing, let's think about the cross, let's think about the empty tomb, let's think about the communion meal that we're going to partake in together, and let's get ready to proclaim through everything we do that Jesus is King. Let's stand and sing. Sing the wondrous love of Jesus, sing His mercy and His grace. In the mansions bright and blessed, He'll prepare for us a place. When we all get to heaven, what a day of rejoicing that will be. When we all, when we all see Jesus, we'll sing. Bye.